Welcome back to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Melanthi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On our last episode, we started walking through the history of the Grammy Awards and their relationship to the Billboard charts. The Recording Academy was founded in the 1950s by industry figures who hated rock and roll and spent the Grammy's first decade avoiding it. The Academy did eventually begin rewarding rock, R&B, and other forms of pop, and by the 70s and 80s, they were aligning with the charts and popular tastes. But as the 21st century approaches, the center cannot hold. Entering the 90s, the National Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences was reeling from its biggest ever scandal the 1990 rescinding of the Best New Artist Prize from fraudulent hip-hop vocal duo Millie Vanilli, which we discussed in depth in a prior episode of Hit Parade. With the Grammys' very existence called into question after this scandal, Naris began to retrench. The 1991 Grammys were swept by veteran producer Quincy Jones with his multi-artist album Back on the Block, and then they went even more old school at the awards of 1992. After a year when alternative rock was on the rise and R.E.M. and Nirvana were topping the charts, the Grammys went fully pre-rock with a pile of Grammys for Natalie Cole, daughter of the late Nat King Cole. That's what you are. On the album Unforgettable with Love, Natalie sang standards made famous by her father. The CD culminated in a duet version of the song Unforgettable, sung by Natalie and the ghostly voice of the deceased Nat. The Academy showered the album with prizes. Most dubiously, they gave Unforgettable, the song, not only Record of the Year for the eerie recording feat, but also Song of the Year for a tune that had been written by Irving Gordon in 1951. With this prize, the Recording Academy was effectively claiming that no composition actually written in 1991 was worthy of a Grammy. That's why, darling, it's incredible that someone so unforgettable. In 1993, the Grammys latched onto the unplugged fad that had taken MTV by storm, and the first major beneficiary was guitarist Eric Clapton. Having previously rewarded Clapton little for his output, 
He did share credit for 1973 album of the year, The Concert for Bangladesh, a George Harrison project. The Academy, in 1993, rectified the oversight to an extreme degree, showering Clapton with six statues on the night for some of his sleepiest work, including a slowed-down cover of his fiery Derek and the Dominoes hit, Layla. To be fair to Clapton, both his Unplugged album and the Unplugged Layla were big chart hits even before he won all those Grammys. That was not the case two years later when the album of the year went to a much larkier MTV Unplugged CD by veteran crooner Tony Bennett. It had to be you. Bennett's collection of great American songbook standards, performed on the MTV Unplugged stage, had barely scraped the top 70 on the Billboard 200 during its 1994 chart run. In a year dominated by the likes of Green Day, TLC, and Snoop Dogg, the Academy nominated not only Bennett's Unplugged album, but an all-blues album by Clapton, and a live album by operatic singing trio The Three Tenors, that even classical aficionados considered a novelty record. When Tony Bennett won over that meager competition, his album became the lowest charting Album of the Year winner in Grammy history to date. Stepping out with my baby Can't go wrong cause I'm in right Ask me when will that day be After widespread grumbling about the 1995 results, not only among critics but Academy members as well, the president of the Academy took action before 1996, installing nominating committees to review Academy members' selections and ensure that some more current music got nominated. For the record, while most critics and some artists came to regard the review committees as corrupt, your hit parade host is a contrarian. I felt the committees saved Naris members from their own worst impulses. Some of the better Grammy nominees after 1995 were likely the work of the committees. They were eventually disbanded in 2021. Anyway, in 1996, after the nomination committees were installed, the results were felt right away. That year's Album of the Year nominees were Mariah Carey, Michael Jackson, Joan Osborne, Pearl Jam, and Alanis Morissette, whose chart-dominating blockbuster Jagged Little Pill took the prize. Two years after that, a hip-hop album won Album of the Year for the first time, when The Miseducation of Lauryn Hill went all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
Of course, Lauryn Hill's superlative disc is as much a singing album as a rapping album, which brings up another Grammy bugaboo, the Academy's perpetual slights of rap music. Once rock became the establishment, rap became the music the Grammys held at arm's length. Rap's presence at the Grammys began inauspiciously in 1989 when a Best Rap Performance Grammy was introduced and DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince's novelty hit Parents Just Don't Understand took the inaugural prize. The new rap award was not televised, and Jeff and Fresh Prince Will Smith led a boycott of the ceremony. In future years, rap Grammy results improved, Early 90s winners included LL Cool J, Dr. Dre, and Queen Latifah. But it took a full decade and a quarter century after the birth of hip-hop before a rapper took one of the top all-genre prizes. Lauren Hill's win was unquestionably a triumph, but it had no coattails. After Miseducation, it was another five years before a hip-hop album took the Grammy's top prize. In 2004, Outkast won Album of the Year with their penultimate release, the double CD Speaker Box The Love Below, an album on which, again, Andre 3000 and Big Boy were singing as well as rapping. Twenty years later, Speaker Box, The Love Below, remains the last hip-hop album of any kind to take home the general field album of the year. In the 2000s, the Grammys continued their retrenchment. Even when the nominating committees put forward adventurous or just on-trend music, the voters homed in on the middle brow. In 2001, for example, the Album of the Year race included Eminem's controversial The Marshall Mathers LP. And Radiohead's cutting-edge Kid A, both of which had been number one albums on the Billboard 200. But Grammy voters sidestepped the Eminem controversy and the Radiohead edginess and went instead with Steely Dan's ultra-smooth 2000 comeback album, Two Against Nature, which had been off the album chart for months when it won. The sardonic, witty duo of Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, now relegated to elder statesman status, finally won the prestige prize decades past Steely Dan's prime, over a newer generation of upstarts. Moving on metal, yes, he's hanging tight. 
was a lot of smooth music clogging the Grammy ballot in the aughts. It was the peak of the so-called Starbucks album, easy listening, jazzy, or rustic sounding CDs that sold near the counter at the coffee chain. Album of the Year winners that got their early boost as a side dish to a cafe latte included 2003 winner Come Away With Me by jazz pop vocalist Nora Jones. I waited till I saw the sun I don't know why I didn't and soul legend Ray Charles's final CD, Genius Loves Company, which won in 2005, posthumously because Charles had died the prior June. As part of Brother Ray's Grammy sweep, his duet with Nora Jones, a song that had come nowhere near the charts, took record of the year as well. And in 2008, Herbie Hancock's River, The Joni Letters, a CD of jazz covers of songs by Joni Mitchell, won an upset Album of the Year victory over Better Remembered Discs by Amy Winehouse and Kanye West. By the way, Nora Jones sang on Hancock's album, too. You saw me mistrusting him, still acting kind. You saw how I the other Grammy fixture in the decade of Starbucks albums was bluegrass vocalist Alison Krauss, who provided her sterling pipes to the soundtrack of Oh Brother Where Art Thou, winner of the 2002 Album of the Year Grammy. When I die, hallelujah, bye. seven years later, Krauss teamed with veteran Led Zeppelin vocalist Robert Plant for the Americana folk album Raising Sand, a big winner at the 2009 Grammys. In Led Zeppelin's heyday, the band's music won zero Grammys. The group was only nominated for, and lost, Best New Artist in 1970. But, as an elder statesman, Robert Plant and his new duet partner cleaned up, sweeping Album of the Year as well as Record of the Year with Please Read the Letter. By the 2010s, even indie rock seemed venerable enough for the Grammys, especially as an alternative to rap and dance pop. In 2011, the Arcade Fire were shocked when their album The Suburbs took Album of the Year over Eminem, Lady Gaga, Lady Antebellum, and Katy Perry. As with several prior 21st century winners, a fine album won for possibly the wrong reason. In 
2014, Electronic Dance Music took its first album of the year when Daft Punk won for their final album, Random Access Memories. Not incidentally, it was the robotic French duo's most retro-sounding LP. The other Grammy trend that compounded in the 2010s was the repeat winner. Not since Stevie Wonder in the 70s had Grammy voters gone back to the same candidates so many times, whether it was Adele in 2012, or Adele in 2017, Taylor Swift in 2010, Swift in 2016, or Swift in 2021. Or Bruno Mars, who kept winning Record of the Year in 2016. In 2018, when he also took Album of the Year. Or in 2022, when Bruno took the prize with his retro style Anderson Pock duo project, Silk Sonic. To be sure, Adele, Taylor, and Bruno were all leading lights of 2010's pop, relatively deserving of their wins. But the blockade by these artists effectively locked out from the top all-genre categories such hip-hop leading lights as Kendrick Lamar, who, by the way, has won a damn Pulitzer, the only musician outside of classical and jazz to win that prize, but he's never won a Best Album Grammy. I'm fucked up, homie, you fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. And post-hip-hop R&B queen Beyoncé, who despite now holding the record for most Grammys ever won by a single artist, as of this podcast episode, she has 32, has won almost none of her prizes in the general field categories. After releasing three of the most critically acclaimed and commercially successful albums of the last decade, Beyoncé, Lemonade, and Renaissance, that feels rather unjust. (laughs) 
So, could this have been avoided? What are some guidelines for good Grammy governance? How, hypothetically, should a conscientious, critically-minded, and chart-aware music fan vote for the awards? I don't have a ballot, but I'm so glad you asked. We'll be back momentarily. Here's the thing about complaining about the Grammys. You can't make firm rules to improve them. You wind up contradicting yourself. It's all well and good to say, nobody should win Album of the Year multiple times. But then, which of Stevie Wonder's or Taylor Swift's big prizes would you take away? It's intuitive to say, no artists past their prime should win a big Grammy. But then Paul Simon wins for Graceland at age 45, and he's scoring hits again like he's back in his prime. Or Bob Dylan finally wins Album of the Year for the first time at age 56 with 1997's Time Out of Mind, and virtually everyone agrees, good for Bob, it's about time. It's not dark yet, but it's getting late. And look, as you have no doubt gathered throughout this Hit Parade episode, I am a chart follower and a lover of current pop. I'd love to tell the Recording Academy, stop giving statues to records that barely even charted. Nobody cares. Stop wagging your finger at the general public. And then an album like John Baptiste's We Are wins Album of the Year in 2022 after charting no higher than number 86. When I move my body just like this, I don't know why, but I feel like freedom. I hear a song that takes me back. And, well, am I going to be the jerk who says a musician's musician like John Baptiste shouldn't win a Grammy? Not to be a spoil sport, but personally, I would have given Batiste some smaller prizes that year and given the big prize to Lil Nas X or Olivia Rodrigo. But that's just me. So, with my usual pile of caveats that what follows is meant to be not only subjective, but suggestive, I am going to offer a top five list of Grammy guidelines. The idea is a hypothetical Grammy voter should mix and match these guidelines as best they can to come up with winners that feel credible, relevant, aiming for consensus, not coolness. Because, let's be real, the Grammys have never been cool. But, at their best, they can feel like they captured a moment in our culture. A Stevie Wonder moment. A Fleetwood Mac moment. A Michael Jackson moment. A U2 moment. A Lauryn Hill moment. An Adele moment. As long as the Grammys continue to exist, let's aim for that. Grammy Guideline 1. Aim for cultural impact. Or, in other words, the charts are your friend. 
Not always, but often, the Grammys miss the mark because they try to second-guess popular taste. This has happened quite a bit in the song categories. And so did I. This is The Shadow of Your Smile, winner of the 1966 Grammy for Song of the Year. It's a jazzy pop standard that has long outlasted the flop Elizabeth Taylor film, The Sandpiper, for which it was penned. It's been covered by dozens of artists, and this version, by Tony Bennett, reached number 95 on the Hot 100 in 1965. All very respectable. But among the other nominees that The Shadow of Your Smile defeated in 1966 for Song of the Year was this. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Now it looks as though they're here to stay. The Beatles' number one smash, Yesterday, which Guinness World Records estimates has been covered more than 2,200 times. You want standards? This is a standard. And a record that captured the zeitgeist in 1965. As I noted earlier in our Grammy history, the Academy was slow to recognize the Beatles. Giving Song of the Year to Yesterday would have been an easy way to do so. Something similar happened in Record of the Year in 2002. U2 had won the prize in 2001 for their big hit, Beautiful Day. And then they won again the following year for Walk On, a single from the same album that didn't even make the Hot 100 and peaked in the middle of Billboard's rock charts. Listen, I am fond of U2, but giving Record of the Year to the Irish band two years in a row, the second time for a song that wasn't even a major hit, was overkill. Two decades later, Walk On has less than one-tenth the Spotify streams of U2's biggest songs, including Beautiful Day. Also, at the 2002 Grammys, Walk On beat a pair of number one hits, Fallen by Alicia Keys, and Ms. Jackson by Outkast. Each of these hits has had a much longer legacy and much stronger Spotify streams. The charts are not a perfect yardstick by any means. Several Grammy-winning LPs that critics have complained about, like Natalie Cole's Unforgettable, Eric Clapton's Unplugged, or Ray Charles's Genius Loves Company, did top the album chart. But in each case, these Grammy winners beat albums packed with chart-conquering singles, like Green Day's American Idiot, Kanye West's The College Dropout, or R.E.M.'s Out of Time. That's me in the corner, 
So, whether it's Frank Sinatra beating the Beatles in the mid-60s or Beck beating Beyonce in the mid-10s, ask yourself, hypothetical Grammy voter, is it really a virtue, legacy-wise, to ignore the wisdom of the crowd? Maybe the crowd had a point. My second guideline is sort of a corollary to the first. You could even pair them together. Grammy Guideline 2. Don't ignore cultural relevance. Or embrace current pop. From rock and roll in the 50s and 60s to hip-hop in the 90s and beyond, there is always a genre or a sound that Grammy voters are leery of embracing. This often produces the most head-scratching results and sometimes the most regrettable runners-up. Yeah, Usher's 12-week number one smash in 2004, and the lead single to his diamond-selling blockbuster album, Confessions, was many Americans' introduction to the sound of crunk, the southern rap subgenre pioneered by Lil Jon. Usher was nominated eight times at the Grammys of 2005, and he won three prizes but only in the R&B genre categories. As noted earlier, the big prizes that year were taken by Ray Charles's posthumous album and his duet with Nora Jones. Even if the Academy felt obligated to honor the late Charles, giving his single Here We Go Again record of the year over Usher's Yeah is the pinnacle of avoiding cultural relevance. Something similar happened a decade earlier, in the 1997 Album of the Year contest. Now, let's give Celine Dion's 1996 album Falling Into You its props. It was a big hit. Three weeks at number one, diamond sales, several hit singles. This was not a case of the Recording Academy ignoring the charts when they gave it Album of the Year. Except... Dion's competition that year included the aforementioned Odelay by Beck, the Fuji's seminal hip-hop smash, The Score, smashing Pumpkin's magnum opus, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, and the acclaimed Babyface-produced soundtrack to Waiting to Exhale. All of these were multi-platinum albums, yes, even Beck's, and all of them sounded more like the mid-90s than Celine Dion's album did. 
Of course, it's predictable that Grammy voters, given those five choices, would go with a showbiz pro like Celine Dion. But it doesn't have to be inevitable. When George Michael took Album of the Year in 1989 with Faith, it was his first major win over such prior Grammy favorites as Bobby McFerrin, Sting, and Steve Winwood. Grammy voters are capable of looking past their industry faves toward pop upstarts. But that means accepting the idea that the sound of now could be more than a flash in the pan. We'll be right back. Speaking of pop upstarts, Grammy Guideline 3. When in doubt, reward youth. This is the opposite of what Grammy voters tend to do. In the aughts in particular, the oldster nominee seemed to win every time. Santana over TLC and The Chicks. Steely Dan over Eminem and Radiohead. The late Ray Charles over Usher and Green Day. Herbie Hancock over Amy Winehouse and Kanye West. But on those occasions when Grammy voters go with the younger nominee, the results virtually always look good in retrospect. In 2020, Billie Eilish was the youngest nominee in Album of the Year, Record of the Year, and Song of the Year, and she swept all of them. Four years later, as Eilish comes off an Oscar win, multiple Grammy wins, and is poised to dominate another awards season, that 2020 sweep looks prescient. Turns out I'm not real, just something you paid for. Other youthful Grammy juggernauts include Stevie Wonder, 23 in 1974, Michael Jackson, 25 in 1984, Alanis Morissette, 21 in 1996, and Taylor Swift, who was only 20 when she took Album of the Year for the first time in 2010 with Fearless. Talk about betting on the right horse. Swift took the prize again in 2016 with her 1989 album, and in 2021 with her LP Folklore. This year, Taylor is a favorite again for Album of the Year, for her 2022 blockbuster Midnights. I love Swift's work and will understand if she wins a record-setting fourth time in this category. After the year she had in 2023, who would be surprised? But I'm not necessarily rooting for Taylor this time, because of my next rule. Grammy Guideline 4. Avoid repeat winners. 
Let's pause and reflect right now on this cringeworthy moment, the last speech at the 2017 Grammys. And like a bit of me has come back to myself, but I can't possibly accept this award. And I'm very humbled and I'm very grateful and gracious, but my artist of my life is Beyonce and this album for me, the Lemonade album was just so monumental, Beyonce, it was so monumental and so well thought out and so beautiful and soul-bearing and we all got to see another side to you that you don't always let us see and we appreciate that and all us artists here we fucking adore you you are our light that was adele winning album of the year for her lp 25 and literally apologizing from the stage for defeating beyonce's lemonade the most acclaimed album of 2016. As fine as 25 was, the fact was Adele didn't need the prize. She'd already swept the awards in 2012 for her more acclaimed and even better-selling 21 album. Now, here's another speech from a decade earlier, at the 2006 Grammys. The speaker is Bono from YouTube. This is our second album of the year, but we've lost two, uh, Acting Baby and All That You Can't Leave Behind, so I know how it feels. Kanye, you're next. And uh, it's a great artist being on the road with us, extraordinary. Uh, yes, sir. <clears throat> However you may feel about Kanye West now, his album, Late Registration, was 2005's most celebrated LP, and a Grammy win in 2006 over U2's less acclaimed How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb probably would have saved a lot of headaches at future award shows. More to the point, as with Adele in 2017, when the winner of a prize feels they have to provide an apologia live from the stage, the voters probably got it wrong. And, as Bono indicated in his speech, U2 had been nominated numerous times and won before for The Joshua Tree. Not giving the prize to a repeat winner might not only have gotten Beyoncé a top Grammy in 2017, it might have gotten Kendrick Lamar a Grammy in 2016 for his To Pimp a Butterfly LP, which was defeated by repeat winner Taylor Swift. One question. Bitch, where you and I was walking? Now I run a game, got the whole world talking. King Kunta, everybody wanna cut the legs off him. Kunta, black man taking no losses. Oh, yeah. Don't come after me, Swifties. I love 1989, but Kendrick over Taylor that year is an easy call. Not giving Paul Simon a repeat Grammy in 1976. Remember, he'd already won with Simon and Garfunkel and would win again a decade later for Graceland might have made room for Elton John's album Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy to take the prize. Weirdly, Elton John has never won Album of the Year. The point is, when checking boxes for a previous winner, especially in the big categories, the conscientious voter should consider the opportunity cost of sending that winner back to the podium. You may be missing the chance to correct a historic oversight.
Which brings me to my last edict. Grammy Guideline 5. Hip-hop is music. I feel I need to say this as plainly as possible. Fifty years after the birth of hip-hop, the Recording Academy still seems to be coming to terms with the idea that rap is not only musical, but worthy of its major all-genre prizes. Jay-Z put it succinctly in 2018 on a joint single with his wife Beyoncé. Build 2, The Carters, just after Jay had gone 0 for 8 at that year's Grammys. Tell the Grammys fuck that 0 for 8 shit. Have you ever seen a crowd going ape shit? Although the Carters do have plenty of Grammys between them, 32 for her, 24 for him, 56 in total, plus daughter Blue Ivy Carter has one of her own, the fact that none of these prizes are in an all-genre category is remarkable. The only exception is Beyoncé's Single Ladies, which in 2010 took the all-genre Song of the Year prize, and that award went to its songwriters, not B herself. Beyoncé, I would venture, has been overlooked in the top categories even as a superlative R&B singer for her proximity to rap and hip-hop culture. Again, to reiterate, there have only been two hip-hop album of the year winners, Lauryn Hill's and Outkast's. Both were fronted by non-rap singles. This should be a source of regret for the Recording Academy. In addition to B, J, Kanye, and Kendrick, major category nominees that have been blanked include MC Hammer, Coolio, TLC, Nelly, Eminem, Ludacris, Lil Wayne, and Missy Elliott. Come on, is it worth it? Let me work it. I put my thing down, flip it, and reverse it. It's your so, the conscientious Grammy voter should keep this in mind. There is a lot of unfortunate history to redress here. Rappers as late as the 2010s and 2020s are getting the same cold shoulder from the Academy that Rock was getting in the 50s and early 60s. Where does this leave this year's ballot, the Grammys of 2024? Prior wins for John Baptiste and Taylor Swift would invoke my no repeats guideline. So sorry, John and Tay Tay. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me, at tea time, everybody agrees. The indie supergroup Boy Genius is a strong contender. Their album, The Record, charted well, peaking at number four, and it has had a significant cultural impact, if a bit like Beck in 2015. They would certainly feel fresh were they to win. I would also strongly consider Olivia Rodrigo, who certainly fulfills my cultural impact and youth guidelines. 
She's Only 20. Her superb second LP, Guts, debuted at number one and is still lodged in the top ten. And it generated a number one Hot 100 smash with Vampire. About the only small strike against Rodrigo is she already won Best New Artist two years ago. But the artist who really sweeps all five of my Grammy guidelines is this year's nominations frontrunner, SZA. On every level, SZA deserves to win. Cultural impact? Check. SOS spent 10 weeks at number one last year. Cultural relevance? Check. SZA's music is very au courant and has been played across radio formats, from pop to rap to even alternative rock. Youth? Check. SZA is 34, not the youngest in this year's Grammy race, but the same age as Taylor Swift. A non-repeater? Check. SZA has only won one prior Grammy in a genre category for a supporting role on a Doja Cat single. And finally, a benefit to hip-hop, Big Check. Though SZA's music is broadly categorized as R&B, and she sings, not raps, she is this generation's queen of hip-hop soul. For a voter following my guidelines, SZA is a slam dunk. Of course, I am prepared to be disappointed, as I so often am, when I sit down to watch the Grammys on February 4th. Honestly, I mostly watch in the hopes it will be a good show. Stuffed with music, the Grammy show is often more lively than the Oscars, the Emmys, and even the Golden Globes. And truly, the awards are a sideshow on the Grammys. In the days after the telecast, the biggest chart impact comes from the performances, not who gave the best speech. It's as if the audience has decided the music is what matters. Also, I kind of enjoy those weird Grammy mashups, one-time collaborations like Kendrick Lamar and Imagine Dragons, Sting and Bruno Mars, or Eminem and Elton John. Some are train wrecks. I'm still recovering from Gwyneth Paltrow with CeeLo Green and the Muppets in 2011. But honestly, the WTF-ness is often part of the fun. Like my favorite WTF Grammy moment of all time, the 1985 Synthesizer Showdown. Picture it, Stevie Wonder, Herbie Hancock, Thomas Dolby in a Beethoven wig and Howard Jones, standing behind a bank of synths and computers, playing a Frankenstein's monster of a pop medley. 
I watch it on YouTube at least once a year. I get back in touch with my inner teen Gen Xer, and I remind myself that, at the end of the day and another year of music, the Grammys are kind of important, kind of silly, and should be fun. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Melanthi. That's me. My producer is Kevin Bendis. Kevin also produced the latest installment of our monthly Hit Parade The Bridge shows, which are available exclusively to Slate Plus members. In our latest Bridge episode, I talked to Billboard Awards reporter Paul Grine about the checkered history of the Grammy Awards and how they align with the charts. To sign up for Slate Plus and hear not only The Bridge, but all our shows the day they drop, visit slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Derek John is executive producer of Narrative Podcasts, and we had help from Joel Meyer. Alicia Montgomery is VP of Audio for Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Melanfi.